You're now listening to episode 83 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here, we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli here today with Tyler Coble, president of the Coble Group, where Tyler helps bring together buyers, sellers, landlords, and tenants in retail, office, industrial, and multifamily real estate in Nashville. He's also author of the book, Open for Business, an insider's guide to leasing commercial real estate and is an investor himself. In today's episode, we discuss office and retail real estate, including the current state of the market and what Tyler thinks the future holds in store for these asset classes. We also discuss what Tyler is currently investing in and what tax strategies he uses. Tyler, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Uh, we see you're from Nashville. We love Nashville. Big fans. We were just there for a team retreat oh, yeah. not, too, not too long ago. Would you be able to give our listeners a little bit of insight into your real estate journey and the growth you've seen in Nashville over the last uh, few years? Absolutely, Thomas Brandon. Thank you guys for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Uh, yeah, I'm actually one of the few people in Nashville that can claim that they're actually from Nashville now. We've had so many people moving here. It feels like uh, we've become unicorns. Um, so I uh, actually went to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville for a couple of years, dropped out, uh, was not uh, too thrilled with college, and moved back here and almost immediately got into commercial real estate. Uh, got somewhat lucky. I had been in sales before that. As soon as I graduated from high school, got a sales job. Did really well. So there was a boutique development firm here in town that heard I was back. And they, uh, this was six years ago, so 2013. And they reached out and offered to pay for my real estate license if I would come and work for them and on their in house properties. And didn't know anything about commercial real estate, but I figured that was a pretty good opportunity. So uh, they gave me a 150,000 square foot shopping center and a 57,000 square foot office building to lease. And we were off to the races. Nice. So it sounds like you kind of fell into commercial real estate in a sense, but why, you know, as your career progressed, why stick with office retail and industrial properties over the other types of real estate that are out there? Absolutely. Well, so I ended up falling in love with it. I really enjoyed everything about working with entrepreneurs, small business owners to seeing how everybody kind of operates their businesses differently. To me, it's like I get to dabble in all these different industries without having to commit to any of them. I just get to be on the real estate side of them, which uh, to me is pretty entertaining. I listed one $1.2 million house uh, for this developer when I first got started. Because you know, I looked at it and they, their residential real estate agent who was in-house left, went to California, and they said, hey, take this over, get it sold. And it was a miserable experience. I mean, I, I did not know what I was doing when it came to residential real estate. And so I was hosting these open houses twice on weekends, you know, Saturdays, Sundays, um, couldn't get it to work. And so I just decided from there on, I was like, you know what? I like how logical commercial real estate is. You know, I mean, it, we had people walk into a $1.2 million house and just go, you know what? I can't see my kids growing up with a paint color on that cabinet. And I'm like, what, do you, what color do you want it? I will paint it whatever color you want. You just tell me, let's make this happen. Give me an offer. So I uh, just decided from there on out, you know what? Office and retail and industrial, to me, it makes a lot of sense. So uh, we've got some partners that do multifamily real estate, and I've looked at doing multifamily, but uh, I just haven't dived in yet. Got it, guys. So I think you alluded to it. There's a lot of business owners you see seeking these commercial properties. Have you ever seen any investors looking at these? Do you deal with investors at all? Of course. I mean, a significant portion of our of our clientele are investors. 
you know, the, the great thing about commercial real estate that's very different from, you know, multifamily or residential, especially you can set these leases up so that the tenants have to pay all the expenses and you can essentially collect mailbox money. It's what's called a triple net or absolute net lease where you've got a base rent and then the tenant is responsible for what's called additional rent. So they'll also pay for common area maintenance. So think of, you know, sweeping the parking lots, paying for any electricity in the common areas, like restrooms, stuff like that. They're responsible for taxes on the property and insurance on the property. So that base rent minus commissions is the owner's net. So if a tenant has a a single tenant property, right? And they're on an absolute net lease, they're actually responsible for maintaining the entire building. You as a property owner can live in New York and that building can be in Scottsdale. It doesn't matter. You just sit back and collect rent. And so, you know, there's, there's a massive amount of commercial real estate investors that focus on commercial real estate as well as multifamily. Love it. Love it. And so with like the, the likes of Amazon, right. And maybe even the likes of us, Tom, I don't know. We run a virtual CPA firm, right? We don't need an office, but we're not as big as Amazon, nor do we have nearly as much market pull. <laughs> if we go back to Amazon, you know, they're, they're virtual. They don't necessarily need all this commercial space or this retail space. How's the market for retail properties looking at this point? And, you know, I was just reading an article, I think it was this past weekend. I wish that I had remembered it for this podcast. The article was talking about how Target has taken its network of stores and actually turned it into a massive advantage over Amazon because they can do these like distribution hubs. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, which I found fascinating. So what are you seeing from a retail perspective, maybe here going into 2020? Yeah, so you know that's uh, that's been a big topic since I've gotten into it, right? Because that was really when Amazon started taking off was 2013, probably t- back in really in 2011. They were already a big company, but that's when they just started skyrocketing. Um, you know, retail has shifted. In my opinion, it is not detrimental to the future of retail. I think retail isn't going anywhere. I think it's just changed, which you know it had to, right? So now we can order all of the conveniences online. But I still have to go to a retail center to eat at a restaurant or to have some sort of experience or to go to the bar and hang out with my friends or, you know, to go to church or go rock climbing, whatever that is. So, you know, we've seen these big box shopping centers start to shift the way that, you know, they're approaching their tenant base. So, you know, one of these big boxes goes out well, they backfill it with a church because a church needs a massive amount of space and they need a ton of parking. Well, these big box shopping centers can offer both of those. And those churches only need them on Sunday. So it works out for the rest of the center. We've also seen them turn into rock climbing gyms and and, and people just get creative with it. So, you know, most of what we've actually built this past cycle, so since 2009, has been in Nashville, especially kind of mixed use. So ground floor retail with offices or residential above. And that will always be, you know, super popular. You know, because now people who are living there, they can walk down to, you know, Orange Theory and work out. They can go to the wine bar next door. It's super convenient for them. So it's going to be tough to say anybody's going to be building these 500 and 600,000 square foot regional shopping centers anymore. But the smaller retail is going to continue to thrive. And we've actually seen uh, sub 6% vacancy rates in Nashville for retail. It's, It's quite amazing. Wow, that's incredible. You know, and I wonder how much the like the human need to socialize kicks in here, right? In terms of this conversation and what's the future of retail or what's the future of commercial space in general. We we are just having this conversation internally as a team 
because we were talking about, hey, we're a virtual firm and like how many people feel isolated and everybody on my team feels isolated, right? So we're like, okay, well, how do we get the social connection going? And, uh, you know, for me, like I sit in this office all day long and then I walk inside and, you know, we get Amazon to deliver groceries, we get Amazon yeah. to deliver everything. And if they could deliver well, a restaurant, deliver. that would be great too. Right. <laughs> but at the end of the day, like you still get to this point where it's like, man, I want to go out and just, I don't care to meet, necessarily meet people, but I want to see people. Just be around <laughs> people. Yeah. Around. I wonder how much that social sort of component ends up kind of playing a role there or, or would end up kind of like, I, I guess what I'm trying to say here is I would agree. I don't ever see any of that ever going away. Yep. And for me, it's really just like, and I'm sure this is like a very naive statement, but for me, it's it's that social component. That social component will never go away. Therefore, you will never be able to truly automate everybody's lives with delivery. Exactly. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, you look at multifamily. And in the last uh, this cycle as well, the average apartment size in new construction has shrunk year over year over year. They're getting, you know, apartments are getting smaller and smaller. And the amenity packages in these multifamily complexes are getting bigger and bigger. And it's because these developers are recognizing the same thing. Millennials especially don't want a big space. They want to go out into common areas and socialize. Uh, you know, like I live in an apartment complex. I can afford to buy a house, but I, I just can't justify it. And, you know, in my apartment complex, we've got a world-class gym. I've got one of the biggest pools in Nashville. We've got a pool table, a shuffleboard, like all these game centers where I can have all my friends over and we can hang out and socialize and never have to go up to my room, which I really appreciate. I might have to come visit you. With you <laughs> You're welcome anytime. I am a shuffleboard champion. Oh, are you really? Like, I do like the little spin thing, you know, where you like do like a little loop around and just land oh, yeah. on the back line every single time. Yeah. You hook it every time. All right. Well, challenge accepted. Come on down. I, I do tend to play on brewery like warped boards. So there's a little <laughs> yeah. bit of it. In there. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, let's switch gears to office space. What trends are you seeing there? So in Nashville, especially, we're, we're moving towards more affordability. It actually has at the moment the largest speculative construction office pipeline in the country. That means in terms of a, a per capita basis for office space, we're building more than any city out there. And we're building it without tenants in hand, which is inherently incredibly risky. But what we're seeing, and the reason we've actually had that for the last few years, is that all of these spaces are getting pre-leased before they're delivered, at least to a certain extent where the, the developers are actually comfortable delivering them at you know 80% occupancy, which is unbelievable. You know, Amazon came in, they actually leased a million square feet of office space in downtown Nashville, which a million square feet is our net absorption annually, our average. So one deal took up our average annual absorption of office space, which is, is incredible to think about. You know, all of the new construction that's been happening in Nashville and the cost of new construction has driven rent rates up the roof. I mean, we're saying 35 to $45 a foot plus for office space, and that's, that's on an annual basis for rent for office space in Nashville, where it used to be, you know, you can get the best office space in town for high 20s, low 30s, you know, which is astounding. So, you know, we're kind of working right now to figure out how to make it affordable for small business owners. There's not a lot of product out there that really supports the small business community. And I can see, I'm sure that's got to be a trend across the nation. Everything's getting more expensive. Everybody's moving to the, the urban core and the business owners and the small businesses that helped make these neighborhoods and these communities what they are today are often getting driven out by this pricing. And so by trying to find either you know rundown buildings that can be bought well enough and then renovated well enough and at lower rates so that you can 
bring it to market for rent at a lower rate. Or one other trend that we're starting to see, especially in Nashville, is office condos. That has not traditionally been a big ticket item here. But now you can bring an 800-square-foot office condo to market at $400 a foot, which is an amazing price. But it's still $320,000. That's incredibly affordable for commercial real estate in Nashville. So you know that's, that's kind of where we're seeing the office market shifting right now. Got it. Got it. So yeah, I know you mentioned before that you know, a lot of these office buildings are using triple net leases. Do you see traditional leases on these office buildings or and how much of it, I guess, is it goes towards the triple net, like triple net leases versus traditional? Sure. So I would say uh, in an office building, unless you're going through and you're sub metering every single space, it's impossible to do a true triple net lease. But, you know, that being said, you can get your lease as close to triple net as possible and then just billing back tenants a pro rata share of their utilities. So we're actually seeing that become very commonplace in new construction office buildings. They're setting them up as more of a triple net lease where these tenants are paying for all of the expenses. So if ta- you know, landlords love it because if taxes go up, tenants have to pay for it. It's not going to cut into you know, our bill. But on your older, more traditional spaces, you're still seeing a full service style lease where you know utilities come in, maintenance, janitorial, all that's just lumped into one price, and then the landlord pays for all the operating expenses. Got it. Before the show, we were talking about how you're also investing as well. You own an office building, and I think you've gotten into some other stuff as well. Would you mind telling us a little about what you invest in and uh, sure. why you invest in, in those assets? Definitely. So I bought four buildings last year for a total of 50,000 square feet. Uh, they were all office space, all class C. And we aim to find a class C property in a class B minus location. I like to go in and buy it cheap enough to where I can drop $20 a square foot in renovations into it and bring it to market at below market rates. So we get really aggressive on the lease up. So we've got properties, mostly all of them are within a 20 minute radius of downtown Nashville. And they're all in B minus locations. They're in areas that we see, you know, there's an affordability factor, but also they're in incredible areas. So that's really what we're focusing on at the moment. We've got some new construction and development going on as well. But right now, that seems to be the model that no one else is really focusing on. We don't really have a whole lot of competition in that arena yet, which is uh, intriguing. So, so if I've got some cash to burn, theoretically, and I know a lot about single-family, multifamily, but I know very little about office, retail, and other commercial space... What are some things that I could like look at around my local area to figure out if something makes sense along those lines from an investment perspective? Yeah, so so just diving into that without having any experience is probably the worst thing you could ever do. Uh, in my opinion, it's it's incredibly risky. What I would say is find someone that is doing exactly what you want to be doing and either work for them, work with them, or invest in them and have them show you the process. Because before I started my own firm about two years ago, I worked for someone else for four and a half years. I read every book, listened to every podcast, bought zero properties because I wanted to go do it on my own. I thought, if I just read this next book, I'll get it. If I just listen to this next podcast, I'll get it. But I never got it until I invested with someone else, watched them do it and realized, okay, now this is actually how it's done. So that that made a big difference. Just giving somebody else the lion's share so that you can take from their experience. So speaking of not doing things by yourself, do you have a CPA? 
I do have a CPA. To me, good, 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 yeah. good, good. He's true to his words, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Very that's good. Right. <laughs> that's, that's incredibly important. I mean, we have monthly financial calls, and and she's basically my CFO. Great, great, awesome. Uh, can you tell us about any sort of tax strategies maybe you've used as a business owner, or maybe you've seen some of your clients use as it pertains to real estate? Absolutely. So I'm a big fan of accelerated depreciation. I think that that is often uh, you get every penny back and and a thousand times more whenever you you go through that process. You know, depending on on the firm and the size of the property, it's probably anywhere from twenty five hundred dollars to ten thousand dollars plus. But you know, they come in, they line item literally every single fixture, furnishing, equipment that you've got in that building, and and help you write it off even faster. And so that, I mean. You know, we had a client who uh, they built a 144-unit apartment complex here in Nashville, and they used accelerated appreciation. They did a cost segregation study, and they made a million dollars their first year, but showed a half million dollar loss because of the accelerated appreciation. So, I mean, you look at—I mean, that's there's no other wealth building uh, tool like that uh, that I've seen. Yeah, cost segregation can be really powerful for any sort of real estate investor out there, especially when you can pair it up with real estate professional status. Uh, do you do you know if you elect real estate professional status on your tax returns? I do, yeah, because I'm a hundred percent of the time a full time real estate professional. So right. I love that. Yeah, love it, love it. So this is a perfect example of what we've talked about sometimes on the on previous podcasts as it pertains to real estate professional status. So Tyler. You probably hit real estate professional status just from your business. Just from the brokerage. Yeah. Which is great, right? So to hit real estate professionally, you need to work 750 hours in a real estate trader business and greater than half of all your other time needs to be in a real estate trader business. You don't, this is all you do. So you meet that second test for sure. And I'm sure that you work way more than 750 hours. (laughs) But then there's always that second piece that people forget about. And that's material participation. You have to materially participate in your rental real estate activities. So in Tyler's case, he could hit real estate professional status just through his regular business, but then he would also have to go and demonstrate how he materially participates in the rental real estate activities. If Tyler was just doing the rental real estate activities and he qualified as real estate professional on the rental real estate activities alone, then he wouldn't have to go and separately demonstrate the material participation piece because that all gets roped up into that real estate professional status alone. So you got to qualify as a real estate professional first. That just gives you the potential ability to demonstrate that you materially participated in your rental real estate activities. But the reason that Tyler is a great example is because you qualify in one business, but that doesn't automatically allow you to deduct all the losses. You also have to show that you materially participated in your rental real estate activities, which I'm sure that you do. But it's just a perfect example because we get clients every once in a while that'll say, well, I'm a real estate agent. And uh, that I qualify as a real estate professional, boom, we're done, right? I've got two properties, I'm good. It's like, well, how much time do <laughs> you spend on the two properties? So I got right. like, you know, half an hour a month. It's like, well, you know, yeah, you're a real estate professional, but you didn't materially participate in your rental real estate activities. Therefore, we can't deduct the losses. We're actually stuck. And that's always like mind blowing to, uh, <laughs> to some people. And it's kind of bad news at sometimes too, but, uh, but you've got a lot going on. I'm sure that you're totally fine. So I appreciate you letting me use you as, as an example there. Absolutely. Yeah. We've done some syndications as well. And we always have investors ask that question, you know, will this qualify me as a real estate professional? We're like, unfortunately, no, well, you, you don't get to take those tax breaks. <laughs> you know what I always ask too? It's like people will come, oh yeah, I invested as a limited partnership in the syndication and 
I'm ready to be real estate professional. I'm like, how much do you participate there? I'm like, oh, I don't. I'm like, how many decisions do you make? I make zero. I'm like, yeah, okay. I've never seen the property. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get the financial reports and that's it. I'm like, All right, I, I exactly. don't think we're going that real estate professional route for you, buddy. Probably wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, that's some hard information right there. Tyler, I know you wrote a book, uh, Open for Business. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about the book and why a real estate investor or you know someone leasing commercial space might want to uh, read that book? Definitely. So I, uh, you know, right before I started my own company, actually, is when we launched the book and it ended up becoming an Amazon bestseller uh, within about 48 hours, which I was pretty surprised by. But I guess it showed the the need for for the kind of information that we were, you know, disseminating through that book. You know, being a leasing agent for four and a half years prior to that, I had seen a number of small business owners who just had no idea what they were doing uh, when they were getting into the leasing process. And so, you know, the thing about commercial real estate, it's, you know, everybody knows about it, but no one knows anything about it, right? Because there's there's no really singular information source out there on commercial real estate. There's no way you can really go learn all this stuff unless you learn it from someone or, you know, listen to a million podcasts, right? So I decided to kind of put the guide together on how to lease commercial real estate. So it's it, it kind of walks a business through the steps of, you know, determining if you actually need space. Can you be virtual? Can you work from your garage? Because, you know, you get into this overhead, uh, you don't necessarily always need to, you know, assembling your team. You know, that's super important. Having a broker, having a, a contractor, having a commercial real estate attorney, specific attorney, that's that's super important to, you know, how to how to find property, how to negotiate on it and and everything to worry about after that. So yeah, we just kind of put the step-by-step guide on how to lease commercial real estate. Nice, nice. And that's on Amazon, right? You said Amazon bestseller? It is, yeah. If you if you just type in uh, "open for business" uh, on Amazon, it should should pop up there. Yeah, got it, guys. So we have we have one question we always ask all of our listeners, and that is, uh, what is your favorite technology or software that you're currently using in your business? Oh man, this is actually a new one. We just switched over to this a couple of weeks ago. It's called Streak for Gmail. It is a CRM that integrates directly into your Gmail. Which for us, you know, me having a team of brokers is incredibly important because the way that it categorizes everything, you know, we, we'll have a deal. Let's say that we've got a listing, right? Or we've got one property, you know, as, as an investor, we'll have a property. I can categorize any email I've ever received or ever will receive into that property. And it will log every single file, attachment, everything that has ever gone through there ever. So I don't have to go back and dig through, you know, 4,000 emails to find where I told a tenant that we were going to replace a light bulb for him. I can go back and it's and it keeps everything tracked in there. And it has a pretty comprehensive reporting system. So Streak for Gmail, it's free. I think there are upgradable options for it depending on how many users there are, but I love it. Nice. nice. So if our listeners want to get in touch with you or learn more about you, what you do, how would they be able to do so? Yes. Yeah, so you can always go to my website, tylercobble.com. We got a contact form on there. If you want to reach out, I'm very active on Instagram. So that's probably the best place to reach out to me. So that's at commercial underscore in underscore Nashville, commercial in Nashville. And uh, just shoot me a message and, and uh, I'm happy to answer any questions you guys ever have. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks again for taking the time to come on the show today. It's been a great episode. I'd love to hear about the office and commercial side of things, office and retail. Uh, A little bit different than the multifamily stuff we're used to, and uh, we look forward to releasing it. Absolutely. Thomas, Brandon, thank you guys. If you haven't already heard, the Real Estate CPA will be hosting the first ever Tax and Legal Summit for Real Estate Investors on February 29th and March 1st, 2020. 
At this event, you'll learn about lucrative tax and asset protection strategies from top legal and tax experts in the industry. Confirmed speakers include Matthew Rappaport, Kevin Caiacho and Trey Chancellor, Bill Exeter, Kim Lisa Taylor, Kevin Day, Yona Weiss, Mark and Andrew Pierce, and many others. Don't miss this incredible event designed to save you thousands in taxes and help protect the assets you work so hard to build. To get 50% off your tickets today, visit www.taxandlegalsummit.com and use promo code RECPA. Again, that's www.taxandlegalsummit.com and use promo code RECPA for 50% off your tickets. Welcome, everybody, to the debrief segment of today's podcast with Tyler Coble. Uh, he was a commercial broker out in Nashville. Uh, love Nashville. I was there twice this year. I absolutely love the environment over there. It's booming. And Tyler actually had a lot of great stuff to add about uh, the future of the office space, the future of the retail space. And uh, he believes it's going to be uh, strong in certain areas. And uh, that's always great to hear, especially as an investor. Yeah, it was really, really cool conversation. You know, we haven't done a whole lot of focus on the commercial industry and we want to start touching base with those types of people. So if you know anybody in the commercial space that would be really interesting to interview, please reach out to us, let us know. Um, it was a fun conversation with Tyler. It was nice to know that, you know, they're still, they, they do all the same sort of things that you would see in multifamily cost segregation, real estate professional status. And that was a great conversation about the real estate professional status. And I say conversation, but I really just kind of <laughs> took over the mic and spoke. But the point was, is that, you know, Tyler runs a real estate business. That's not his, his rentals, right? He's not doing that full time. So he can qualify as a real estate professional on his real estate business. That doesn't necessarily mean that he gets to use all of his losses, right? There's always that second step. That's material participation and your rental real estate activities. So he has to be able to demonstrate that he materially participates in those rental real estate activities. And that's going to switch those losses from those activities to be considered non-passive. And he can use those non-passive losses to offset other income. So it's a really key differentiation between somebody that does the rentals full time, right? That person qualifies as a real estate professional on the rental real estate activities and just through the nature of qualifying as a real estate professional solely on the rental real estate activities, they also automatically demonstrate material participation. So I was glad that we were able to make that determinate or that, that difference, be able to point that out live with a real example. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a key distinction. I think a lot of people don't understand that there is a difference, you know, with the tax code. There are sometimes, well, often I'd say uh, the devil is in the details and you just have to make sure that you're checking all the boxes and being compliance. So definitely want to speak with your tax advisors before electing something along the lines of the real estate professional status to make sure that you are doing it the right way. But absolutely a great example of that distinction right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Tom, what questions do we have today from our lovely audience? All right. So today we have a question from Catherine and Catherine asks actually a very timely question. Uh, if I want to qualify as a real estate professional, but I'm working full-time, is that possible? And if not, could my spouse qualify as a real estate professional if I can convince them to leave their job or go part-time? Convincing a spouse to leave, huh? That, that's a non, that's a, <laughs> a life question. <laughs> well, Tom, I'll let you answer the first part. You know, you, you, you're working a full-time job. Can you qualify as a real estate professional as well? Oh, if you're working a full-time job, it's going to be very difficult to qualify as a real estate professional if not flat and impossible. Um, Extremely difficult. I mean, I think of all the tax court cases that I've came across, there's only one instance, and I forgot the case off the top of my head, but there's only one instance where someone was actually able to qualify as a real estate professional while working full-time. And to substantiate that, in tax court, there's actually required a testimony of several different associates of this individual to uh, basically say, hey, no, this person is a workaholic. They're an absolute animal. They definitely did work 
over 2,000 something hours, whatever it was in the, in the case. But again, that's one circumstance. I would say the vast majority of people are not going to be able to qualify. And if you think about it, you have to be working over 80 hours a week just to even have a chance. Break that down, though. Why why is it so hard to qualify as a real estate professional if you work a full time job? Is you know the IRS they consider a full time job to be around uh, two thousand, maybe two thousand eighty hours. So that's about forty hours a week over a fifty or fifty two week period. And to qualify as a real estate professional, you, it needs to be more than half your total working time in real estate. So that would mean you need to work at least a, uh, you know two thousand eighty one hours, let's say, and that would be eighty hours per week. And that's just to get one hour over the requirement. And, you know, as an advisor, I can never recommend someone working one hour over the requirement. There's way too many nuances for this election to simply just work one hour more. So that's why it's so difficult for people to qualify and why in almost all circumstances, you're not going to be able to qualify. No matter how hard you try to justify it in your mind, unless you're really going to be glued to work for the year, <laughs> then uh, and you're going to be really good at documenting your time in both aspects, it's probably not going to be Right, right. So the, the, the way that it's written, it says you have to spend 750 hours. That's step one. A lot of people can do that if you have, if you have a large portfolio built out. Step two is spending more time in a real estate trader business than all of your other material participation activities and a W-2 job is a material participation activity. So as you were saying, you spend 2,000 hours in your material participation activity. You need to spend an additional 2,001 hours in real estate so that more than half of all of your time has been spent in real estate. And uh, that's a pretty high bar to pass. Yeah, no, it, no, it certainly is. And that's why it simply does not work. However, there is good news that if, if you're working full-time, but you have a spouse perhaps working part-time, or not working at all in another business and they want to get involved in real estate, there's a good chance that they could meet those requirements. And then you both would qualify as a real estate professional. Now that's interesting, right? So I can work full-time, but my spouse, maybe they work part-time or maybe they don't work. They can manage the real estate, the rental real estate activities, and they can qualify as a real estate professional. Now, one thing to point out is my time does not count towards my spouse's time for the determination of your real estate professional status, right? So my spouse has to qualify as a real estate professional by herself. We can't combine our time. So my spouse can't work you know, 400 hours and I work 350 and we combine our time and call her a real estate professional. But what's interesting is that once one of us qualifies as a real estate professional, that second piece, that material participation piece... We can combine our time for that test. So like my spouse could be a real estate agent and she could work 750 hours, qualify as a real estate professional, as a real estate agent. And that's all she does. So she qualifies as a real estate professional. Now, the second piece, though, is we have to show that we materially participated in our rental real estate activities. You know, Qualifying as a real estate professional on your real estate agent activities alone is not going to get that material participation piece met. But if she spends 250 hours in rental real estate and I spend 250 hours in rental real estate, we can combine our time for the purposes of that material participation test. So that's a cool, like, I don't want to call it a loophole, but that's a cool little thing that I don't think that a lot of people really realize about the material participation piece. So you can't combine time to hit that first hurdle, which is the real estate professional status, but you can combine your time for purposes of material participation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's a lot of opportunity out there. So 
before we wrap up for today, I just want to let everybody know that if you are interested in having your, your question answered on air, you can go ahead over to www.therealestatecpa.com slash podcasts. That's podcast with an S. And uh, drop your question in the box right there on the page. And we may just answer it here on the podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.